Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Today, I'm having a conversation with Nate Wilson. Nate, welcome to Cycling Alignment. Also, my office partner, Don, is having a conversation in the background, so <laughs> you guys get to hear that too. Sorry. Um, it's just what's happening. Nate, please introduce yourself. Say hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Tell cool. us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Um, so I guess to introduce myself, I rode bikes for a while. Uh, Colby, you were my coach for one year. I learned mm-hmm. a lot from that. And then I stopped riding bikes actually after that year and uh, finished, a gr- finished a degree in physiology and uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do with it job-wise and started coaching uh, cyclists as a bit of a hobby stopgap and got really into it. And over time, it kind of turned into my full-time job. Uh, I've always thought of myself as coaching first, but I've ended up having a few different roles that aren't necessarily coaching because I worked for USA Cycling and was the program director of the U23 team um, and then was the high performance director for the road and track programs where you kind of end up almost doing this sort of like sports science coordination role. And then now for the past two years, I've been working for the EF Education Nippo World Tour team as the performance manager. So there I'm doing st- all through all those roles I've been doing coaching, uh, but also had a few different hats to wear, uh, whether it's sport directing or training camps yeah. or just being a person to go on the scooter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a nice mix. Yeah. Nice. So one thing, um, you know, when I talk to Alan Lim, he always talks about working at the world tour and we used to joke that he was, uh, the world's most educated bus driver at one point because <laughs> that's like what it is when you work for a ultra team, right? Like there are days where you just end up driving the bus or handing off a bottle or doing the simplest stuff. Yeah. I think Alan referred to it as the 99-1 rule, yeah. which was maybe a bit skeptical, but I think that was 99% bullshit, 1% gold yeah. is kind of an interpretation of that. And the gold being the chance when you get to like sit down with a rider after like a really hard stage or, you know, whatever, some training ride where he just he or she just annihilated themselves and you you make a connection and you have that moment of um elucidation where you highlight why that ride worked or yeah. what was important about it. or maybe they maybe you get them to rest for a couple of days and then all of a sudden their legs come to life and they turn the corner yeah that's the one percent or the whatever moments that you have right yeah that's that experience no i think so i think that 99 one is an interesting one too because it's also like a lot of that work it's not hard yeah. Like driving a car, handing a bottle, making sure someone has like driving the car just so they can take their jackets on and off and yep. execute a six hour ride well because they have the food. It's something that like a lot of people could do. You don't mm-hmm. need to be a genius to do it, <laughs> but it, it's also probably the 99% like importance before yeah. you get that 1% of whatever your moment is where you say the thing that like you had to say that maybe someone else wouldn't say. Right. So it's, I think it takes a little bit of humility to realize it as well. Yep. <laughs> like that, like you better make sure that, uh, they have a good place to sleep and plenty of fluids to drink before you're too hung up on telling them some like 
dichotomy, uh, shattering idea or something. Yeah. Yep. Or some higher level concept of training about how they didn't execute the 12 second surges, right? Yeah. Whatever. Right. I mean, that's, I talk about that in my pot all the time. Like for me, coaching comes down to the six foundational principles. Like it always reduces to that. Almost always, I'll say almost always, which are people who are long time listeners to my pod will know this, but you get to hear them again anyway, because they're so important. It's eating, sleeping, drinking, thinking, movement, and breathing. And so an athlete comes to you and they're shattered, got bad legs, had a horrible workout, couldn't execute, couldn't, you know, race poorly, couldn't achieve their objective, couldn't help the team, couldn't do whatever. And for me as a coach, it's always the fundamental, like return to the foundational principles. Like, okay, how's your diet? You know, what, what happened when you cracked four hours into this ride? Were you eating enough? Oh, well, yeah. Um, I, I, we didn't have a store and there was no follow car. So, and I only brought one bar and then we went to this one shop and it was closed, you know, randomly. So we couldn't get food. Okay. So you ran out of juice. Fair enough. Or hydration. Oh yeah. I, I totally forgot to drink on this ride. I guess, I guess you're right. I didn't really drink enough or like, or it could be off the bike. Like, yeah, I've been meaning to tell you, I started this new all broccoli diet that I read about. I've only been eating broccoli. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Let's talk about that. Why, why, that, my, why might that not be working for you? Right. And, and when we review these foundational principles, it helps us as coaches, just like hack apart and have a way to cleave to find out what the essence of the problem is. And most of the time, the essence is the root of one of these, in my experience. Yeah. I don't know, would you agree? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's also, I think you need those kinds of core principles that you really believe in to go back to. Because otherwise, like, you sit there looking at a power file, analyzing it to death, trying to get it to tell you something that it can't really tell you. Like you actually need to just have like a human conversation to find out this relatively simple thing that sits at the root of it. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Yeah. Well, no matter what they are, I feel like, yeah, you need those core principles that you just have confidence in like, well, these things really matter. So let's just at least do the due diligence of checking the boxes that those are going okay. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not, then that's probably at the root of our issue. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. So, okay. Let's rewind for a minute. You said that you, you study physiology. That was at CU, right? Yeah, exactly. University of Colorado in Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. CU Boulder. And you raced collegiate there as well. I did a little bit off and on. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't the most consistent student cause I took a lot of semesters off to do, uh, racing in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I think I missed a, actually a lot of collegiate racing but I I raced collegiate at the beginning of my uh time as a student and at the very end of my time as a student once I kind of stopped racing in Europe so and what year did you graduate from CU uh 2014 okay and then you got hired by USAC after that right yeah pretty shortly I mean I started working for them for free um just because I had like an idea and so I started working for them in 2015 as like an intern because I had this idea and I wanted to be more involved. And uh, it was a really cool opportunity for me to work with the U23 program mm-hmm. and kind of be, I guess my idea was to be kind of a go between between the federation and the sport director there. That was Mike Sayers. And then like the main pool of around 30 athletes that kind of were part of the rotating team that was the U23 team and their coaches and kind of just try and be like a neutral person in the middle Mm. to say to USA cycling, here's what I see in these athletes. 
and tell the coaches, here's what we see in the races in Europe and maybe where we see gaps in ability and what we see as like the limitations and what we're learning from European racing demands that are also different because a lot of these athletes had like really good coaches that only had experience coaching in the U S mm-hmm. where the racing demands are just different. So sometimes it would be, they would go to Europe and not perform maybe as well as they're capable of. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they didn't have the potential to, but it's just, they're training for different demands. And so just needing to make some pivots mm-hmm. there. So yeah, I started that in 2015 and then did it, in 2016 as well you got hired so it sounds like it went well yeah i think it went well (laughs) yeah uh depending yeah but (laughs) in 2016 i did it and then in 2017 i did the started being the program director for the u23s right but yeah so 2016 was when i was like hired at usa cycling okay cool Yeah. yeah and so all right you and i had a bit of a discussion before we started recording about this concept and i want to unpack this but there's it sounds like this is central to your role that you took at USA Cycling in a sense, but in a world tour team, I don't think people maybe always understand this, but there's this tension between having an internal coach or an external coach, right? An internal coach being defined just so people are clear. If a coach is an employee of the team and they're hired to coach coaches, like you said, McKelly Bartley does that for EF now, right? Yeah. That's his role is he's a coach. Yeah. He's not a director. He's not a mechanic. He's not a swanier. He doesn't do any. He doesn't do a box course or any of that stuff. He just yeah. coaches riders. So that's his role, and he's hired by the team, and that's that's a different relationship with the team to someone who's external to the team to the team that the athlete hires as an individual yeah. to work with them as a coach. And the reason it well, please unpack that reason. I mean, what? Why is there a tension there? What what difference does it make? Who cares? Yeah, I mean, I th- yeah, it's interesting. I mean, first, I guess just to say, like, I think. Uh, more and more now the norm is within world tour teams that it, they have an internal coaching program. If well, you the UCI mandated it a few years ago in theory, right? Yeah. It's a little ago. bit mixed. I think under the yeah. UCI rules, you can work with an external coach, but every team needs to have at minimum a performance director that manages the training of all the riders. So that means an external coach from outside the team could write that training, but the performance director kind of needs to take the responsibility of overseeing that, making sure there's a plan, Mm -hmm. making sure it's, you know, healthy, safe, fair recovery, fair work, um, and things like that. So, but, but there's also the option to just be completely internal. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like the Denver Nuggets or something. Like if you go play for the Denver Nuggets, you, maybe you work with an expert outside the team in a small area, but like, the coach is the Denver Nuggets coach. And so like there's way more of that happening in cycling where they have a coaching staff. And if you go to that team, you work with that coaching staff. Um, at our team, we have a coaching staff and we have uh, like a performance director that over- is responsible for overseeing everybody. Mm-hmm. But we also have the ability for riders to work with an external coach if it's a relationship they've had a long time and it's, it's going well. Right. Um, so if someone worked with an individual coach since they were a U23 rider and then they get a contract with EF, you know, at age 24 or whatever. Yeah. And they want to continue to work with that coach. That's possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think a lot of times there's a big advantage to that mm-hmm. or uh, there's like, there's reasons to do it. Uh, and a big part of it's, I think what we were talking about before it's, it's relationship and internal coaches, you know, I think it's, really great for a team to be able to provide that service because 
okay, not to make it too nuts and bolts, it's also like a pretty big cost to pay for a coach. Right. And if you have a coach provided by the team that is a good coach and you believe in and it's a fit for them, mm-hmm. like that's a great thing to have provided by the team. And and a lot of times the coach that works for the team might be more in the loop than like with what the sports directors are seeing in the races or schedule changes that might come up. Yep. Um, or like if the rider gets ill, the coach can be a quicker communicator to the medical team than an external coach ever can. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily because teams try and put up like walls to the external coaches. I think it's partially just like logistics. Like people only have the time to communicate with so many people per day. Right. And so like, it's really important that the external coaches be a part of that organism and conversation, Mm -hmm. but it's just almost quite naturally often going to be that things communicate internally faster than they do looping in someone externally. Um, But so I think some of the tension that can get built there is that like, if your coach works for the team, I, I think over time the relationship can be really good, but it seems quite natural. It's, it's hard to be completely open and honest with them to the same level you could be with an external coach where if your coach works for the team, you work for the team, everyone's kind of working for the same person and like important information needs to be passed up the chain, whether that maybe benefits the rider or not, because the coach doesn't work for the rider. He works for the team. His job's to benefit the team. And so if a rider has an issue that might lead to a decision being made that doesn't benefit the rider, Right. Like the coach can't really say, I'm going to do the thing that benefits the rider because his job is to do the thing that benefits the team. Whereas if you work with an external coach, their job is to do the thing that benefits the rider. They're an advocate for the rider because they're paid directly by the rider. Exactly. Right. So I think it's not even a thing about like people being like good or evil or, no, or whatever. Yeah. It's just like you're sort of by definition on slightly different sides. Yep. And the goal is that like, of the time you're on the same side and everyone's just working together to like help the rider be fast, which helps the team do well, which Mm -hmm. is what everyone wants. Right. But there's times where like a rider might have an issue that they really need to like get off their chest or talk about, Mm -hmm. but they also don't feel totally comfortable sharing that with basically their employer. Yeah. But if you have a coach you work with externally, then you have that sort of outlet. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, it's always going to be a different relationship on some level. Yeah, that's interesting. And then it also makes me think about the kind of relationship between data and the rider. <clears throat> and like, you know, we, for years I've worked on and off of training peaks. Now I use today's plan. And I think both those, those platforms will say use the same policy, which is the understanding legally. I'm sure this had to be defined at some point legally, but the rider owns the data, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately the rider can determine who has access to that access to that data and I've gone through this fire drill several times where I've been a coach, an external coach of a rider who becomes employed by a new team. And then I have to go in and share their account with various different um, employees of the team that the mm-hmm. rider rides for, you know, the head DS and maybe their personal director sportif and maybe some of the team coaches and performance mm-hmm. managers and whoever else. Right. And that brings up a really kind of different perspective because I, I think that maybe there's an old school mindset that perhaps some coaches sort of harbor 
we'll say magic bullet workouts or secret techniques or something like that. But at the top level, there's a lot of data sharing going on. Totally. And, And if you did have some magic workout that you were giving, you know, whoever, I don't know, um, Sergio Iguita or, you know, or Rigo or, you know, Froome or whoever, that was some magic over under formula that had them suddenly smash all their power records, which I don't, I mean, yeah, there are moments in a rider's career where they can sort of air quotes, discover a new stimulus and it does lead to breakthrough, but I don't think it's because it's a secret. It's probably just likely that rider hadn't, hadn't really explored that intensity or that type of energy system before, or maybe not in that way. I don't know, but maybe I'm missing something, but (laughs) But now there's certainly less and less opportunity for that to theoretically be a thing because if I write, you know, all these workouts for one rider for Alex Howes, who I coached for years, and then I, at one point I think there were 12 EF employees on his account right. shared. Yeah, right? which is like totally normal now. It's normal. It's kind so of like they're going to see all the workout structure that I give Alex, all the comments, totally. all the discussion we have back and forth. He can't. Yeah, he's not going to get there and be like, "Man, my director was such a dick today." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not that that would normally happen, but you're. It's like Big Brother's watching, kind of, in a way. Yeah, yeah. So totally. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting one because I don't know. You also, it's, it's kind of like a human need to let emotion out, you know. But then, like, if your place to let emotion out has historically been on your training peaks diary or whatever, then yep, you might start rethinking it because also it's like if you say something in a second, it seem it's pretty clear. Everyone's standing there. It's it's emotion or whatever. But when it's just written on a page, it's kind of like you lose the context of it a bit, you know, too. And yep. it's easier to just like look at it as mm-hmm. words on a page and sort of spin it however you want. Um, so it's like the same conversation about how text loses tone. And yeah, sometimes you could say something that you mean tongue in cheek and then you read it later. You're like, ooh, totally. that came out. <laughs> and then we made this crude attempt to try to tonify our text conversations with emoticons, which yeah. are just stupid. I mean, <laughs> I'm guilty of using them, but. Most of the time after I use one, I'm like, why did I use that? That's just not, it's, it's so pigeonholing me into yeah. something that I don't want to say. Anyway. Yeah. That's no, but me. it's, um, you mentioned, uh, <coughs> what'd you mention? Hmm. Sorry. I think it fled from me. That's all right. If it'll come back, it's important. Yeah. Maybe. Come back. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, cool. I mean, I think that relationship is interesting and it, it makes me think about data and the relationship between the coach and the athlete and what that relationship really is. Or also a part of our conversation that we had earlier before we were recording was about the difference really between we might say a coach and a trainer. Yeah. Right. And, and I would, I like to use those terms in my head, at least, I don't know the, the perfect terms, but to describe them conceptually for me, a trainer would be someone who's really writing workouts specifically like today you're going to do four by five minutes as fast as you can or whatever or you're going to go ride for five hours and hold a steady aerobic pace etc look at this cadence and maybe they write other details like drink this many bottles of water or shoot for this many grams of carb per hour okay but that's all basically a trainer but a coach to me also usually would envelop the the subset of training but with a bigger lens in most cases and they would also understand that, you know, you don't have gym access right now and you own two kettlebells and a wooden dowel. So that's what we're going to build a strength program around. And on Wednesdays, 
you've got a really long work meeting at lunch. And so it's only possible for you to ride the trainer for 30 minutes in the morning. Yeah. And that requires you missing 30 minutes of sleep or whatever, all these details that yeah, you yeah. are particular to the athlete and, and really getting involved. And, and I've been to several coaching seminars, including, you know, some of the USAC ones where I got my USAC category one coaching license or whatever, or four it's backwards, isn't it? I don't, I forgot now. No, it's, I think it's the same it's as the same. race. It is the same. One is yeah. highest. Yes. Wait. But then people ask me all the time, like, you're only a category one. <laughs> That's the most important one. <laughs> anyway, whatever going through the system means, whatever that number is, which I already forgot. Uh, it was a few years ago, to be fair. And I learned a lot during that program. But, you know, you go through some of these coaching sort of seminars and people talk about this revolutionary idea that as a coach, you're not just a trainer. You're actually more of a psychologist. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, what do you think about that relation, that sort of delving into the other yeah, world? I think it's, I think definitely. I mean, I, it's interesting. Like sometimes I wonder if it's the, as popular to have that sort of relationship with a coach uh, or trainer in other countries as it is in America. But I feel like in America, like a lot of times you, you end up getting coached by someone you're a bit close to locally or something. And it's a, it's about training and it's very relational. Um, maybe yeah. not for everyone, but I think more times than not, it's super relational. Whereas then by the time you get to the world tour level, the things actually might get split more. I think mm. you, you still need a confidant or you, most people need relational aspects to their life, but things might get a bit more split up actually, where the person that writes your training becomes more your trainer Maybe they become more your trainer you know yeah. and they might ask you how you're doing because like that's important to know mm. but like yeah they might be more focused on writing the training program at, rather than developing the relationship side of things or it also just takes time mm. you know um, well and you made an interesting point also earlier that when a coach um is really a coach that works internally for a team and maybe they're managing or coaching a few riders a lot of times coaching becomes more almost about logistics, mm -hmm. right? It's like, okay, we've got six days between these two races or 14 days where we're going to be at this camp. But day one, everybody arrives and the camp's at altitude and 80% of the riders are coming from sea level. Yeah. So that dictates that the first three days are going to be of a certain nature, right? We're not going to totally. go blitzing a bunch of intervals and crazy hard motor pacing. Like things are going to be somewhat sedate because you have to let riders at totally. least have some curve of acclimation. Yeah. And then what's the goal of the camp? Who's there? Is it a classics camp? Is it a climber camp? Is it a stage race camp? Is it a yeah. pure sprinter camp? Like yeah. probably wouldn't have too many of those at altitude, but maybe who knows? It depends <laughs> on what they're preparing for. Yeah. Right. If worlds are in Colombia, maybe. Yeah. If they're flat, although never mind, that never happens. <laughs> but um, so but you know, so we have to consider all these factors and then look at what the goal of the camp is and look at the context of what riders you have. And then that all goes together. And then by the time you add flights plus altitude plus this day, oh. Um, the sponsors are coming and yeah, they need to yeah. do ride these new wheels. Totally. So that's that day gone. So that's, yeah. a, that's a day where we're going to be putzing and yeah. probably up early for photos. And yeah, so there's a lot, a surprising amount of logistics that goes into dictation of totally of training schedules. Yeah. I think a right? lot of times when you're, especially a situation like that, it's almost like uh, the context ends up making the decisions rather easy. Sometimes, you know, yeah. Um, not to say there's not thought that goes into it or whatever, but yeah, it's like when you add up everything that needs to be accounted for, you realize, oh, there's actually like three days of training 
that I need to figure out, you know, and, and that's something I've tried to realize for myself as a coach, even when I write training for anyone and like, they have nothing else impacting it is like, sometimes I get, you look, I get almost like the writer's block blank page of like feeling a bit overwhelmed of like, right. You could do it, you know, cause I feel like now, I don't know, you you get coaching long enough or like for me, I've worked in these team situations where exactly like you were saying about the training peaks, having like 12 people shared to the account. Yeah. Well, there's been now a lot of times where I've been one of those 12 people shared to 30 different accounts at USA cycling and at EF. So it's like the, like, like knowing what workouts are the option is not really my problem, you know, like knowing like what the possibilities are, isn't the problem. It's like picking what and when to use it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like for me, a lot of times the challenge isn't in like trying to discover the secret workout. It's more like trying to boil it down to a simple enough decision that you can say, this is the, secret workout we're going to use yeah, yeah. today but like when you add in like okay well someone needs to rest and they need to do some days that are just general endurance and they need to do that and like whatever it, then for me it always helps narrow it down to something that feels like a more manageable decision okay yeah. there's only two days that i actually have really to, need to figure think out. about you know <laughs> the rest of it's all like yeah actually basic it's almost like you're looking at the calendar and you're finding areas of negative space, which is yeah. are not filled by stuff. Totally. Right. Or recovery or travel or photos yeah. or whatever adaptation or um, whatever other random stuff people have to deal with. Totally. And then you go, okay, these are the days where there's actionable training. What's the best use of time? Well, <clears throat> sometimes the answer is like, there aren't that many actionable days over a 12 day block Yeah. between all the racing and recovery and all the other things we have to do and travel. So then we go to, like in that case, it's almost like you're riding these workouts that are in a sense benign, mm-hmm. like they're hard and yeah, they're actionable, yeah, totally. but they're simple. Yeah. You know that the calendar is really crowded with a lot of stuff. Yeah. So you don't want to give someone a crazy hard complex workout they've never done before. Yeah. Even if you think it might be a magic bullet because totally. what happens if they go out and they misinterpret it or they do it for the first time, like, you know, as an athlete, like you get a new workout. Like the first time you've ever done Tabatas, you yeah. look at it and you go, I have no idea what is going to happen here. I need to do this like three times before I can really learn how my body's going to respond after the seventh 20 second effort with that shorter recovery. So there's trial and error. So you don't want to use that workout during this period where you've only got three days and 12 to really add load. Exactly. Right. We need something more bread and butter, so to speak. Yeah. Something that's just going to be totally fine. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I figured that out myself um, as an athlete, kind of doing the American scene where you fly out on a on a Friday, race to NRC 100K crits or yeah. a road race in a 100K crit or whatever, and then you fly home Sunday night or Monday, and then you've got three days really in between, especially yeah. going to the East Coast because it's a full day of travel, basically. Totally. Yeah. It's like, how do I train without, but also balance recovery without making myself yeah. too tired? But then next Friday, I have to go do the same fire. Yeah, that one's a really hard. It's a really good one because that was one that I ran into a lot with the U23s where they might come over for six weeks in the spring Mm. and race once or twice a week for six weeks. Um, If it wasn't like a more dense Kermes block, like if they were doing the bigger races, a lot of times they would race one or two days a week for six weeks. And kind of like enough time to where they're almost always recovering? Like, where do you think? Yeah, well, that's kind of the funny thing is like every race is hard, 
so you finish it and think that was really hard. I got to rest, but like you also can't taper for six weeks without being like really slow six weeks later or, or even three weeks later or something. So I think I have an idea of how I like to do it now, but that Mm -hmm. was one that it took me a while to figure out because also people like that idea of training specifically for the thing that's in front of them, you know, chronically tuning up, right? Like Saturday, Sunday, I'm doing these classics. So Wednesday I'm doing a mini three hour workout of a classic. Yes. But then you just end up doing like over (laughs) six weeks, uh, two race days, one three hour day. That's basically like really polarized, like super easy or super hard. And then like another few easy days, and like you can do that one or two weeks in a row and then eventually you just kind of don't have a base yeah so yeah i think it's Mm. it's so easy to like get caught up in that like training in ways that look cool but like (laughs) you actually just don't ride enough Mm. um yep just baseline riding yeah one of the yeah like i mean like hagen said it's an aerobic sport damn it which i don't totally agree with but he's got a point (laughs) he's not wrong yeah um but yeah, we have to maintain that just steady. There's something about just going out for six hours and just pushing on the pedals at yeah. a, uh, whatever pace, whether you're slightly above LT1 or LT or below it. Yeah. Polarize, not debate this, that, whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, the stuff of podcasts right now. But right. also that six-week example you gave of like where people are racing like Thursday, Sunday for six weeks in a row. And they're kind of like always racing and recovering or it's really hard to find training days. That's assuming that they finish every race, which they totally. don't, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's One the day thing. they'll just suck and get dropped. Yeah. One day they'll flat in the first 20K like three times. Yeah. One day they'll make it almost to the line and then crash really hard. Totally. Hopefully not, but that <laughs> happens. And then you're like, oh, now he's all banged up or she's all banged yeah. up. Like I got to give her a couple of days to like get straight and make sure she gets a couple massages and totally get the wounds healed and stuff. We can't be pushing it too hard probably depending on whether they hit their head or, you know, grind yeah. half their butt off. <laughs> so yeah. it's like there's all these variables. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a good, there's a lot of variables in the, a lot of metrics to balance. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. It's kind of a fine line. Cause I think you need to have a six week scope. Otherwise you end up being really reactionary and every day sounds hard. Yes. And then over six weeks you end up losing a lot of fitness, but then you also have to like be super reactionary. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, in terms of tweaking things on the fly. I mean, for me, the biggest thing is, yeah, I prefer to make a plan for say four weeks. So I have an idea of like what I want to do. And then mm. we change it from there. Mm. Cause otherwise I just for, I forget things. I lose the forest and the trees kind of thing. Um, that's, that's human nature. I think. Yeah. And it's also one of our most important tasks as coach. I, I believe is to constantly zoom out yeah. and keep the athlete. Cause you just said earlier, like it's so, it's so human nature for us to want to tune up for the next weekend totally. to optimize. Cause we want to yeah. win every race we enter. Totally. Like most people do anyway. Yeah. Well, um, there's such a confidence in the idea that like, we're going to go up this climb. It's going to be one minute. And on Wednesday I did these one minute intervals, yep. but like it might not even, you know, the decisive moment in that race might not even be a product purely of like the energy system that you're training with these max one minute intervals. Like you might have plenty of, capacity in that duration that you're not limited there at all Mm -hmm. you're more limited on like how wrecked you are by the time you get there and for one guy that might be purely from aerobic endurance and for another guy it might be the opposite it might be that he could get there 
and smash it if you just rode around in zone two. But then if you introduce another 25 minutes of work over threshold, uh, like his resistance to the accumulation of that work is so low mm -hmm. that like his, he's got this huge difference between this like general aerobic endurance and his sort of like, I call it like race endurance, mm -hmm. but like, is that like not all, kind of? no, just like the accumulation of volume, uh, above threshold. Ah, so like okay. the time and zone stuff, ah, okay. you know, yeah. where it's like not every KJ is the same, right? Like one right. guy can be great after 3000 KJs. Yep. If it's all at 65% of threshold and then, but he could be really bad. Um, on an undulating course. Exactly. Same yeah. average, but a totally different way of arriving there. Yep. So yep. I think that's like, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes an athlete's mm -hmm. endurance isn't, it's not limited by just general aerobic endurance. It sure. might be limited by their endurance to an accumulation of intensity. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or you could, yeah, you could break that down by watt, watt prime or yeah. um, FTP or versus, uh, versus, uh, FRC, FRC in the WKO world. That term flew yeah. out of my head for a second. I'm so bad with those terms. <laughs> I'm like, I end up, I end up realizing I just have these like I, ways I think of things in my head that aren't based on like universal terms. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where 90% of the time it's fine, but sometimes you want to explain an idea to someone and you're like uh, saying weird things, you know, <laughs> like race endurance, you know, race endurance. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, but what do you what mean? It? What does that mean? And I'm like, no, I just said it, race endurance, come on. <laughs> and that's so true in coaching, especially we develop our own vernacular, right? Yeah. Uh, our own little, little terms that we kind of just refer to in our head conceptually. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's a thing. I mean, I just had this the other day. I was working with an athlete that I've worked with for a few seasons now. And when I transitioned over to the EF team, EF coaching platform, you know, we went to today's plan and we, we all sat down. You were part of these meetings too. We talked about terminology we we're going to use and defining our, our terms we're going to use for our intensity spectrum. And, you know, are we going to call it tempo? Are we going to call it VO2? What terms are we going to use? And we eventually settled on maximal aerobic power. Yeah. And there was a lot of discussion on that, which I found really interesting. And, and, you know, we specifically designed the terminology so that we could maybe escape some of the more common colloquialisms that float around in cycling. Like right. I did my intervals at VO2 and we talked about why we didn't like that term. And, right. and I'm not saying any language is good or bad. Like yeah. ultimately it, I'm agnostic about it. Like you have to have a clear path of communication with your coach. Yeah. That's the most important thing. You got to understand exactly what they're talking about when they write your workout and they write, whether they write maximal aerobic power or VO2 or bleeding out your right. eyeballs or full gas or whatever term they use, you got to know what they mean. Yeah. But I had a moment the other day where I was coaching a, a rider that I coached for a few seasons and I was looking at his ride report and going, ah, I see what's happening here. He's using, he's still hung, hung on the old zones that we had used previously right on training peaks and we're off by one click yeah it makes a big difference and i was yeah. like okay yeah stop <laughs> trying to turn these tempos into thresholds pal yeah. and he was like thank you thank you thank you <laughs> yeah but it was my bad for not being i didn't catch it earlier yeah you know i mean that stuff is funny because i always think like oh, okay the name the names we use for things don't matter like it's one of those things where it doesn't matter what you call something if you do the correct work and the outcome is good right like that's more important than if you call it vo2 max but like physiologically it's not but if the person's fast great but then at the same time like there is kind of this value to having things be understandable or be logical and 
for sure to not be like confusing. Um, yes. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Simplicity and there's a balance there in coaching between signal and noise. Yeah. You want to give the rider clear instructions and minimal instructions, but also at the same time, you want them to be um, comprehensive. Yeah. And balancing that is hard because totally. you can write uh, six chapters on how to do a workout and then the rider gets two paragraphs in and they're like, what, who cares? I'm just going to go ride. Yeah. Right. Most riders. Well, and I guess that. sometimes that's where there's such a value and like you get to the point where you've worked with an athlete long enough that you can actually, like I've found that like I have riders, like I have workouts saved in my library that have all this sort of like text written into them of explaining basically how to execute the workout but then i have riders that i've worked with for four years or something and i could just write it like i don't have to write any text it could just be like a grocery list and like yeah it doesn't matter because they know what to do you know Mm because so there is a bit of that just i guess learning curve of no matter how clear something's written Mm. sometimes it's just like you've got to go try it and then I'm going to see what you did. And then yes. we'll talk about yes. how maybe I think you should have done it or, right. or even like you did it right, but you had like one idea of why you were doing the workout in your head. And I actually had a totally different one. And you actually thought the workout was a huge waste of time and just super annoying. <laughs> but then once we understood the same idea, you actually thought it was quite got it. valuable. Yeah. But and I feel like there's just no way to prepare for all that. Mm-hmm. It just takes time. Yeah. So I had a great meeting with the team EF coaching crew on Monday. We do our, our meetings on Monday morning. And just so everyone's clear, um, I should define this. It just occurred to me, but Nate and I are colleagues in the sense that we both work for EF, but we're on different sides of the fence in the sense that Nate works for the World Tour team. So he manages that end of things. I work for the team EF coaching platform, which doesn't coach the World Tour team. We coach anyone who wants to go fast on a bike. Exactly. That said, we've done a lot of work together. Nate and Peter Skep and myself all built the workout library that is used by Team EF Coaching. So we did a lot of collaboration on that, which was great. But we had a meeting the other day, and uh, one of the projects that we did recently was I wrote a training program for the Festive 500. So it was a six-week preparatory program for riders who wanted to take part in the Rafa Festive yeah. 500, which is 500 kilometers between Christmas and New Year's. It's a challenge. Yeah. And I think they used to do it all out of RCC clubs and you had to go do the thing with the group, but yeah. then COVID happened and now <laughs> it's like you can do it on Zwift or a combination yeah. of in and out, inside and outside, and or you can do it with the RCC crew or not. As long as you log it, you're doing it. I think that's how it works. I should probably know the answer to that, but I don't. <laughs> anyway, I just wrote the training for it. And, um, and we've been having these weekly meetings and some of the feedback we've been getting that's really been quite useful is that one of the things that Zach Morris and I came up with as a concept was to put a practical application in front of our workout. So part of the workout design that um, the the four of us, you, myself, Peter, and Zach came up with was we put, um, we gave the workout certain parameters. We gave it a focus. So the idea is to tell the writer what to focus on. Like there's a lot of details below and a lot of description, right? A Mm -hmm. lot of of hopefully the right amount of complexity mm-hmm. in how to do the intervals, what cadence, what the rest intervals are between efforts, et cetera. But ultimately we wanted to overview that with a focus, right? And that was really important. Um, and then one thing we added with the Festive 500 was a practical application. So um, we did add, also we used to have a purpose in there and there's some, overview, there's some overlap with these two concepts, but 
Purpose is the bigger why. Why are we, why are we doing these intervals? Mm-hmm. And I think writers have responded pretty well to seeing that. Um, but the practical application is like, well, why specifically? Right. Why am I actually doing Tabatas? You know, 20 seconds really flat out and then 40 seconds relatively easy. Right. Why do I, why do I care? Like I'm training for a Fondo. And so when you help bridge the gap, that really gave, I think, a lot of writers purpose, like you were just describing. Like sometimes you write a workout and the writer goes out and, and they do it and they're basically kind of annoyed by it or they don't right. really understand the why. Yeah. And this is a lesson that I've really learned, a bigger lesson I would say that's really been landing on me as a coach. And, you know, I've only been doing it for 16 years now, so I'm just starting. But, <laughs> or I'll say, that's a smart ass way to say that I'm always learning. Um, and I will continue to be learning probably forever, hopefully forever. That's the goal. But the why is so important for riders because, you know, we see all these athletes that grow and evolve. You've seen tons of elite amateur, especially U.S. male U23 riders and young riders, you know, progress through your coaching and go on to, to graduate to world tour teams, right? And you see them blossom and you see these processes, you see them make mistakes, you see mistakes that maybe you make as a coach. And then sometimes you see the limitations of that coaching and hopefully that grows you. And then all that we'll say wisdom goes into the prescription of when you have a new athlete, you evaluate them and you get to know them and you learn about them and you say, okay, here's their goal. Here's where they are. How am I going to get them there? How am I getting them from A to B or into the right orbit to achieve that goal? And it's so easy for us to do all these intuitive calculations and maybe actual calculations with data um, and then make that plan. But it's also really easy for us to not regularly check in with them on right. why, what, yeah. whether it's a single footstep or a giant leap or yeah. overarching game. I think it's super important because a lot of workouts, yeah, I think a lot of coaches would have athletes do workouts that could fall into two categories, some of which just make perfect sense to them in terms of how it relates to their goal because it almost kind of mimics that, you know, like they're doing the Leadville 100 and they do their six hour endurance ride and they know that's super important. It makes sense to them. It's like basically the same thing. Kind of transparent. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or it's like a, a race and it's more of a specific simulation type workout. But then sticking on that Leadville 100 example, the coach also wants them to do eight times two minutes really hard with four minutes recovery. Right. And they just, it's a hard workout and it doesn't make sense why they do it. They know they're never going to go that hard for any two minute chunk of the Leadville 100, Mm -hmm. but you're training for an adaptation that Mm -hmm. will have a benefit in the event, but it's much less direct in terms of just how obvious it feels in terms of replication. So I think, I mean, that's probably a simple example, but I think there's a ton of that where like there's workouts that are similar. So it makes a lot of sense. And then there's a workout that's, actually really dissimilar, but you're doing it for a hoped adaptation. Yeah. And that's where you kind of need to understand, I guess. Yes. And when we overlay the concept, the simple concept that human beings, too much of anything is good, is bad for a person, right? Mm -hmm. We give Sarah the same workout for four months in a row. We know it's, I mean, we don't know how it's going to manifest, but she's going to crash and burn, right? Mm -hmm. She's either going to just become completely flat and non-responsive to training. If she really keeps drilling herself, she'll give herself mono or right. COVID or something, yeah. or she'll get injured yeah. or she'll just hate bike racing and yeah. just quit. Yeah. Like, um, or some other negative outcome. Like 
humans don't respond well to repeated stimulus, especially the exact same stimulus that's um, maximal. Right. Right. And, and I think that's a very fundamental, very, very basic, important fundamental to training, but it, it continually surprises me how many athletes don't quite grasp that concept. Um, they're thinking, well, I've got a time trial that I'm training for in August. So it's December. So I should just be doing time trials now, right? Right. Like 20 minute efforts as hard as I can. Right. And the more of those I do, the stronger I'll be in August. And that right. is so not how the human body works. It disrespects all these annual rhythms, right? This relationship with the evolution of the body and how biology responds to stimulus and load. Totally. And when I say biology, I don't really only mean the body. I mean the body mind, right? Like we all love to think that we're these badass guys and gals who like, if my coach told me to do three by 20, as hard as I could three days a week for the next nine months, yeah. I would do it and I would smash it every time. It's like, okay. <laughs> Okay, Jocko, <laughs> dial it back a little bit. Yeah. You're, we're not David Goggins here. Like, yeah. yeah, David Goggins could probably do that. <laughs> but this is one of the ways in which I think Instagram culture kind of poisons us, right? It's a little kryptonite. Yeah. Because for 99.9% .9 of all athletes, even world tour level riders, that would be disastrous training plan. Yeah. Well, like, and even maybe Adam uh, Hansen could do it. Well, and there's just such a gap between like what you could survive and what will make an athlete fastest. Thank you. Um, yes. And that's like, I, usually they're not the same thing. Um, so excellent point. Yeah. I think people yeah. really want to feel like there's such a, I mean, I think it's sports attract people that get satisfaction out of working hard, which isn't a bad thing, mm -hmm. but when you crave that satisfaction to be working hard sort of enough mm -hmm. that it outweighs comfort or confidence in working moderately and just understanding that sometimes like enough is enough, but not only is enough enough, enough is better than, than more or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, it can be like really mm -hmm. self-defeating, you know, mm -hmm. I think so many athletes like have such good work ethics that the last thing they want is to feel like they didn't work hard enough, which can really lead to like, rather than trying to sort of make that guess of what is exactly the right amount or even a good enough amount, but allows that bit of conservatism that might actually be better. Yeah. Every, most people would prefer to be like at the ceiling. So like, even if the outcome wasn't great, they mm -hmm. can at least say to themselves, well, at least I know I didn't slack off. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. It's, um, a bit of a Western phenomenon, I'll say, to throw Western culture under the bus, whatever that means. Because <laughs> if you go far enough west, you go in a circle. So it always that terminology always drove me nuts. I mean, obviously, I know what it means, but I don't like it. But <laughs> it's the it's the more is always better fallacy, right? And I think I can say with some reasonable clarity that I've got a bit of insight into this because I fell victim to this for many years of my career, and. For me at this point, to be honest, I think this is one of the reasons why some people gravitate towards me as a coach because I just call them out on their bullshit. But it's because I had that bullshit. I carried that shovel around myself for a long time. And that is really simple. Like it's the tired, worn out story of how many of my listeners will identify with this. 
I'm not really that talented, so I have to make up for my average yeah, talent yeah. with extra hard work. I mean, all that is such a pile of crap. Let me unpack why. And if you're triggered right now, I encourage you to keep listening. <laughs> but this is what I went through. I can't speak for what you're going through, but I can tell you what I went through. And I can tell you that I see a lot of parallel lines of thought in athletes that I have discussions with. That's I try really hard not to imagine what's going on in other people's heads because they don't really know. But for me, I had that story. I grew up racing with Jonathan Vodders. We traipsed all around the country in his Volvo and my Honda Accord and did all the things, all the super weeks and all the Gila's and all that. And JV soundly kicked my ass in every single instance of significant altitude gain during a road ride or race ever bar one. I think I put him under pressure once and that was former my life. And he like was out till two in the morning chasing chicks at a smoky <laughs> bar the night before. So I had, you know, that was the card that tipped the balance. Also, he's kind of out of shape and probably had a head cold. But anyway, every other time, JV dropped me like a bag of rocks whenever he wanted to. So, you know, like all kind of sibling-esque rivalries, that has benefit for both of us in a way. I mean, you know, there's lots of people that grew up racing with each other and kind of had that, that brotherly relationship that pushed them, um, hopefully for the better, that rivalry. But it also beat into my head that I wasn't very good. That, that was also me going to a lot of bike races when I was younger and just getting my teeth kicked in. Like yeah. had a lot of ammunition in that pile. Like <laughs> I'm not really that good at this, but I was just too freaking stubborn to give it up. And I loved it. And I was all in on cycling. So I was a complete bike dork. So I just kept grinding away until I found a way to survive in the sport and try to actually win a bike race now and again. And then I ended up winning a lot of bike races, but most of them are ones you've never heard of. They're not like, you know, the Giro or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Strada Bianchi. They're not races like that. They're like the Route 66 stage race in Gallup, New Mexico. <laughs> Woo. Um, so good job. Who cares? But um, it was fun for me. But the point I'm trying to get to is that for years, I applied that more is better perspective, which is simply that I was less talented than most of my peers. So I was going to make up that gap by training harder. And that's a fallacy in most cases. Right. Why? Because the peers who are innately, we'll say better than me, whatever that means, let's just pretend for a moment that we all agree that better than means they had a higher threshold and a higher VO2, because that's probably what most people think of. So most of these athletes, which JB had both those things, so we can use him as our example again. Most of, most of my peer group had a little bit better than me in those markers. And so for me to think that I was just going to train harder than them is a fallacy because any of them who are really motivated, assuming they're, they're really invested in the sport about as much as I was, they're going to be training as hard as I am. So how am I ever yeah. going to make up that gap? I'm not, I'm not going to make up that gap. But what I've learned since then is that it's not just FTP and VO2 that determine the outcome of a bike race. Right. Huge shocker. There's probably 30 other things that are almost equally weighted, I would argue, that determine the outcome of a bike race. And this is a novel concept in today's Zwift world where all you see is watts per kilo on your screen, and that's what people are focused on, I think. Yeah. And even at the world tour level, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like eating is cheating, watts is watts, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because things it's so easy. There's so much numbers available that it's like, it's really easy to tr to crave putting things into like a, a a way you can make a black and white decision when it's so ah there's so many different scenarios or outcomes. But I, I thought it was interesting what you're saying about you know having that motivating idea of like I'm gonna outwork people because I think a lot of 
people have that idea, exactly what you said. I, mm. I might not be as talented as X person, but I'm willing to work harder than them. Even regardless of if that person, the talented person is uh, working hard, equally hard or not, I think the tough thing that is really hard to accept sometimes is there's not really an amount of motivation that can influence your body's ability to raise the amount of work it can positively respond to. Mm. Like there's something to be, I think for sure over time, you know, mm -hmm. like over a five year period, that motivation of just chipping away at it is going to totally change the amount of work you can positively respond to. And in year five, you'll be able to do training that you could have never done in year one. Right. But you can't change that one week at a time by just being like more motivated because people just get tired. And like, I mean, motivation can carry you through that, but it doesn't necessarily carry you through that to a positive outcome. Mm. Um, Right. So I, for me, that's one that's always interesting. And I think like I've been lucky now to work with some athletes that they're definitely not that person that was like, I'm less talented. I need to make up for it in hard work. They're more talented, but now in like a very talented pool mm -hmm. and still want to make up for it with hard work, you know? Yep. Yep. And I like, it's always made me think of this quote that I heard from a running coach that I've really liked is like, Sometimes the biggest talent is to realize that you have talent and just go home and ha take a nap. Yeah. Um, and yeah, kind of being like mm. so afraid to not be the one that was like the last guy to leave the gym or like the athlete that worked the hardest. I think the fear of that can be really yeah. self-defeating. The FOMO comparison. Totally. Looking hard. I saw that person work out. They did five by six flat out after totally. four hours of riding and because sometimes the hard better. thing is to just like go to yeah. bed at 9 30. yeah yeah <laughs> um right. it's, it's not to have done like an extra three hours in the week it's mm. it's to get an extra hour of sleep yeah um you know or to be prepared with your nutrition on the bike or yep. something like that you or know actually wear the right clothing for yeah the cold ride. there's like a lot of ways to work hard but mm. like the most tangible one that everyone gravitates towards is like how much did I ride and how hard did I ride? Yep. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. There are a lot of ways to work hard. Well said. Yeah. Work hard at your recovery. Yeah. Work hard at your sleep. Yeah. Work hard at your nutrition. I mean, something yeah. I've really learned from mm -hmm. now, like working with some more triathletes because the workload they carry is so massive. It's insane. That it, takes insane organization i mean they're taking i always like joke to my wife about it that it just blows like i don't really like i mean i take showers but it's not my favorite thing to do and like i'm like man these you athletes like are taking like three or four showers a day yeah you know and they're just like they have to just to get through the training load that they physically can carry takes so much organization mm -hmm. because it's like if they haven't done their little meal prep and if they're not like set up with getting body work done a couple times a week and they're not doing their prehab before they go out on their stupid 30 minute recovery run. That seems like no big deal. Yep. It's like, it all like falls apart really quickly. Mm -hmm. That's really, yeah, that's a great point. It's not one of those disciplines where you can get to your third workout of the day and realize there's no food in the fridge and you can yeah. just go grab a subway. That's the thing. It's like sometimes for them, the training's the easy part. Like they have no problem showing up for that. It's like being organized to manage the day and manage the recovery and stay healthy. Yeah. Like that's where they actually have to like 
place the most of their sort of mental energy yep. and like tell themselves this is the hard work they need to do. The logistics, the planning, yeah. the prep. And then of course they have to have uh, life partners that are on board <laughs> with all that. Yeah. Otherwise it's like an early culling, right? Yeah. Like, wait, you need to eat 7,000 calories today in 12 meals and shower five times <laughs> Yeah. and train for six hours total? Yeah. It's really crazy. I don't know how that becomes the normal for people, but I've now met a lot of people where it does that become their normal. normal. Yep. Yeah, it's, yep. it's crazy. I mean, good for them. I guess it's the ultimate expression of the warrior archetype, right? Like go <laughs> look under all the rocks and conquer all the things and throw all the spears to use Paul yeah. kind of yeah. analogy. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying earlier about data also, like I did an interview a while ago with, with Jeff Winkler, uh, who's a coach for Winkler Cycling and a uh, very smart guy. And he was talking about how Athletes just seem to want certainty. Mm -hmm. And, and I also think this is an error. A lot of athletes make in my experience from what I've seen is, is, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago too. It's, it's what I call the parallel universe error, right? It's like, let's say that you write someone a block of training five weeks because they've got, you know, a big run into um, a team camp and then a big race that they're doing or something like that. And you present it to them. It's like, okay, this is what I think we need to work on. You know, I spoke to you about how you're feeling and we, this is how your early season went. And this is what your data shows. And you might need this type of work. And we want to focus on this type of work. It's important for your race. And they say, okay, cool. But why are we doing five minute efforts? Should we be doing eight minute efforts? Because Siler says do eight minutes and that's more aerobic, <laughs> but you're telling me to do five. And what's the pros and cons? And what they want to do is make this comparison, this parallel universe comparison and this happens post-mortem too, after the five-week block, where they look back and see how much improvement they had or didn't have. Right. And they say, well, what if, what if, right? What if there was a, another me that started five weeks ago and decided to do the eight-minute intervals? And this is just human nature to think this way. But it's also the wrong question to ask because we can never answer this question. There's no double-blind study right. that can answer this question. Because if you write intervals for athlete Q and you give them five minute effort focus for five weeks with all the other things that they're going to get, we can't rewind the clock and have athlete Q go back and do eight minute efforts and keep every other stimulus the same. That doesn't exist. That's just a thought experiment. That's all it is. Exactly. There's no double blind. Like we can put a hundred elite athletes, which never happens by the way, in a yeah. double blind study and examine five minutes versus eight minutes. But all the bioindividuality alone will annihilate the results and the applicability to your athlete. Right. Like they might show us what's trending. They might give us ideas. I'm not saying science is useless, but like we need to stop worshiping science as the new religion. Right. The number of athletes that come to me and are like, show me the double blind. I don't believe it unless it's it just right. it drives me a bit nuts. It's like, <laughs> okay, pal, how much do you love your wife? Do you love your wife? Yes. Prove it to me. Where's yeah. double blind? How much <laughs> do you love her? 100 or 3000? Yeah. Like, and there's so many things that we can't double blind. I made this point in my podcast too, but I think it's really important. We just, we're like, we're, we're like just praying at the altar of science right now. Totally. And most of it's five years old by the time you read a paper about yeah. it, A, and, and B, to bash science for a moment and B, most of it's bullshit. Like when you read the actual studies, you read sure. the methodology, it's like, okay, that's not applicable. This isn't applicable. They screwed up this design yeah. and then it was all people that aren't elite anyway. So the adaptation they got probably was just a result of the fact that they trained hard. Right. Well, that's or, the thing. I mean, it's, it's all super contextual. I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot to be gained out of 
paying attention to science, but it has to be gained with like a full understanding of what occurred and how you could interpret it and like then how much replication or not there is value in because you know like the way scientific research works is that people are trying to show a difference and so to show a difference you need to define a way to to measure that difference which means you need to measure a pretty narrow thing or parameter or testing protocol on the bike or or whatever it is Mm -hmm. but then so it's great but the issue is like you can only really have a high level of confidence that the application of whatever x method showed a difference in that way you can't really have a high level of confidence that you're for sure going to take what they learned and just because it increased like vo2 max on an exercise bike it's going to make an athlete bike race faster. Right. Like for sure, there's a correlation between improving VO2 max and race performance. performance, but like it's not one-to-one and it's not everything. And for some athletes, that might not be the limiter. And mm-hmm. so it's it's one of those things where everything occurs in such a context that mm-hmm. I think the ability to take one-to-one sort of applications from a scientific research study into real world training prescription is is super gray so it's kind of ironic that people only feel confident in because it's like you said like if they really dove into like the context it occurred in and compared that to the context they're trying to perform in there wouldn't really be a reason to have this super high level of confidence because you would realize well they're actually really different it doesn't mean it's worthless worthless. but it also means it's not like the same thing Mm -hmm. um yeah. Yeah. I mean, also to quote Coggin again, he, I believe I'll paraphrase him a bit, but he said something to the effect of, you know, it's a mathematical model and all mathematical models are valid in a certain domain. The relevant question is, what is their domain of validity? Right. Meaning we can make a mathematical model of whatever you want, the size of this room, the area under a curve, your Watts prime or your, you know, FTP or your FTP after 5,000 kgs of work. Totally. We can model all this stuff. But the question, what is the domain of validity? Like if we only model it and we and then we test that model in 72 degrees and 72% humidity, as soon as you're in Europe in the real world and it's pissing rain all day, then everything changes, right? Totally. And then it may no longer be a valid model because you needed another whatever, X number of calories per hour. Yeah. You didn't get because yeah, of the cold yeah. weather or you suck when you, because you can't take off a rain jacket. I mean- a rider can have the most amazing VO2 in the world, but if they can't go around a corner, they're not going to be a very good bike racer. Just yeah, to go back yeah. to the 30 things that can out influence. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look at Phil Gaiman, for example. Like, super talent of a rider, really amazing at going uphill. Yeah. But it took him, like, three seasons to even be able to get to the front in the European peloton. Right. Right? I coached Phil for a while, so I can bash him a little bit. <laughs> I mean, Phil. to be fair, Phil, Phil made huge progress, but he also, it's contextual. It's super contextual. It's super contextual. He grew up in Florida on flat roads and he was like 8% stronger than the next rider in any Peloton there. Yeah. So anytime he wanted to do anything, he just swung out in the wind and dropped everyone. Yeah. Right? That's not how Europe works. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I think that's a big one with the science thing is I feel like there's so much to be learned and so there's so much value in paying attention there, but it has to be like yeah attention paid with like a bunch of questions attached of like is this even going to help and was the population and 
I mean, I feel like at best you're kind of hoping for a positive correlation because you're never, the, the things they use to judge a change in scientific research studies are, as far as I'm aware of, never the exact same thing as uh, I mean, we're trying to coach athletes to perform in. They're in an artificial environment. They have to be by definition. Exactly. Because yeah. they're trying to control things. So It's not their fault. It's no, just no. like the gap yeah. that exists by nature kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think that's a good way to say it. Like, I, I don't think, I'm not saying science should be thrown under the bus. I know I went on like a Dennis Miller rant <laughs> there. Um, and I do think some of it should be thrown away to be honest, but a lot of it teaches us many, many good things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, the unfortunate part to get maybe at risk of getting a little political for a moment, I'll say the other problem with science is that because so many people all use the word worship science right now in 2021 mm -hmm. and information in general is so prolific and information is controlled by media, you can connect the dots. Yeah. Media is going to control science to tell us the story they want to tell. Yeah. And because people believe in science, which isn't a bad thing to believe in. I'm not saying don't believe in science. I mean, you walk around our neighborhood and you see the, the science. Science is real. <laughs> sure. Okay. I have no problem with that. But there are people who are paid to come up with an air quotes scientific conclusion. Right. There's my, that's as far as I'll go down. That <laughs> I'll just say that. But anyway, it goes too off track. Okay, cool. Um, we've got just over an hour now. How are you doing on time? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, all right. Whatever works for you. Okay, cool. I want to do a couple more things if you're good with it. Cool. Um, so let's talk, let's talk lessons, uh, coaching lessons. I've got one that I'll share. If you want to go first, I'd love to hear just whatever comes to mind, like, like what's a big lesson that you've learned as a coach? What's the thing that you really figured out that really helped yeah. give you insight into helping your riders perform better that maybe you, you might have said, you know, yeah, a few years ago, like you, you were unaware of it or you became enlightened to yeah. it or whatever. Hopefully it's tangible enough and not too basic, but like a big lesson for me is like when in doubt, like work on aerobic base and stay away from like, vo2 and threshold work if someone's racing a lot because like you're getting so much of that in racing uh that it's way easier to overdo it than underdo it mm -hmm. and having that base underlying it i think kind of drives the ability to respond to that huge volume of it you're getting in racing so i mean for me i think that for a long time i was really focused or really like really attracted to the idea of workouts that look super thought out and specific and then those are often by nature more intense because it's pushing and pulling on these buttons and it looks really good but I think it's also really easy to just kind of go a bit overboard with those workouts so like several years ago now uh <coughs> Ian Boswell asked me to coach him and it was the first time I'd worked with someone at the world tour level and above the U23s. And I was really excited about it. Um, and I was probably just too close of friends with Ian and not confident enough in principles that I'd actually already learned mm. that like we just wound up doing this thing where like we had all these great ideas of like how we're going to train to work on his weaknesses and like put him at the front 
of like climbing days in world tour races. And he'd gone from sky to Katusha and he was going to get the chance to go for GC more. And so we're so focused on like what should have been list eight, not like number eight, nine, 10 on the list of 10 things to focus on because they were like in our heads, the specific things that were going to change the game. Mm -hmm. And they might've been, but I think we were so focused on eight, nine, 10 that we moved them up to one, two, three, and just kind of did like, training in the wrong order and like nothing was wrong mm. but it wasn't right at the time mm. so it was one of those things where i don't think any of the workouts we did were evil or wrong it's just like the order wasn't right and so like exactly like you said about an athlete doing too much intensity too consistently for too long like there just wasn't really a response and like he wasn't terrible but like he wasn't good either mm. And definitely not as good as I think he had the talent to be. And it was just one of those things where it's like, I finally sat down and just looked at it and tried to look at it how I would look at like any 19 or 20 year old. And I just realized like, well, he went from being in Vermont and doing like 14 hours a week on the trainer to them being in Europe. And like, we were just training chronically for the thing right in front of us yep. of like, we're doing these workouts to get ready for this climb. Oh, add a little heat stress. Cause you're doing tour of Oman and like, it all felt so high level, but like he just never built a base. Mm. And so like by the time he did the tour, he was good. And we kind of did it, like I said, in the wrong order and things came mm. around and he was good and it was like salvageable. But that was an important lesson of like yep. the simple things matter the most and like focus <laughs> on those. And then, and then like, if you have some ways to improve the simple things, great. Mm. But like, if you don't do the simple things, the athlete's probably not going to be very good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you could almost maybe describe that as an order of operations. Yeah, kind of conundrum. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like we were saying earlier. I don't think there's really a secret workout because I think the challenge isn't in knowing the workout to do. It's mm. it's knowing when to do which workouts. Because like one guy's secret workout might be, I don't know like really complicated but at the end of the day you can put it into one simple bin of like it stresses the volume of time someone does in sort of that max aerobic power zone yep. and there might be another workout that looks way simpler but the underlying stress is the same so it doesn't really the outcome probably isn't that different yep. of whether you do the workout that looks really cool or the one that looks really simple but the thing that influences the outcome is the order of operations like you said mm -hmm. and yeah and, and you can tailor those type those two workout choices the complicated one and the simple one towards the athlete a bit depending on what the personality is like totally because i think some people just live for that like yeah. complicated stuff and it's like it really gives them purpose yep and it gives them focus in the ride and for other people their quality of work totally diminishes because they're just confused yeah yeah so. And they miss the why maybe because yeah. of all the gizmos or wingdings we yeah. put on there, right? Yeah, I've to add to piggyback on that too. I say I I've made this mistake a few times as a coach because sometimes you you write out training and you look at it and you kind of assess it from this critical eye. You imagine yourself as the athlete, right? And when you know your athlete pretty well, you can kind of imagine what they see. And what you're trying to do is get them a certain result from this block of training or week of training or whatever it is. And you look at it, you go, well, I'm not doing enough, right? I've fallen into this era where it's like Sunday just needs to be six hours, like 
aerobic riding. That's right. it. Like you literally write it in two sentences. Like, yeah. And then you just almost feel bad about the fact that it took you like 10 yeah, seconds to do to do yeah. it. But the fact is like most of cycling is just freaking riding your bike. Right. I mean, I think it was Eddie Merckx who was like ride lots, right? I mean, yeah. that's the most important training advice. Like ride lots. I would add to that rest really hard. Totally. Right. Yeah. And, and eat food and drink water and sleep Yeah. and have good thoughts and good breathing <laughs> helps too. But anyway, so it's like, but fundamentally, a lot of cycling is just hard freaking work. And we don't yeah. need to, we can dress it up with these little accelerations or all this descriptive stuff about cadence and all these things to do. And sometimes that's useful. It has utility. Right. Because some riders get bored. But also those riders may need to understand that fundamentally, a lot of cycling is pretty freaking boring. Like, yeah. it's a boring sport, man. Yeah. You ride your bike for 22 hours a week for multiple weeks in a row or maybe more if you're Emerson, <laughs> right? You're doing 35-hour weeks, several yeah. weeks in a row, like that's a lot of time just sitting on the saddle. And for yeah. the first few days, it's great. Yeah. And then it's like, Ooh, Oh, I'm really sick of energy bars and yeah. you know, sandwiches at a gas station. I better start figuring this out. And what podcast am I going to listen to? Yeah. So I think that's been a tough pill for me to swallow at times as a coach when I've gotten better at just understanding and being honest with myself about that. Like a lot of times the part of a training plan I might write and put the most amount of time into and sort of pat myself on the back is like, that's really where I made the difference. And this is so cool and specific and special mm -hmm. is almost the part that actually makes the least amount of difference in the realized outcome. And it's just the basic being in a good, safe middle of the road place, yeah. having good ratio of work to rest mm -hmm. and then doing some intensity at the right timing. Mm -hmm. It's like, those three things are the things that that's probably influence formula. like 95% of the outcome. Yeah. That's the magic formula, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not making the more is better error. Yeah. Right. Either as an athlete or as a coach. Totally. Um, yeah. I think I've definitely fallen victim to that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll share one if that's okay. Um, a lesson I really just recently landed home for me was that I maybe, I don't know if it's partially because I've had a relationship with different metrics for so long. Like, you know, you ride with the power meter for three, four, five years and you get to the point where you can go close your eyes. I mean, not, you're going to do this while you're riding <laughs> down the road, but you imagine like, okay, it's 243. You look down and it's like 241. You start to get to that point where you okay. understand the power, the heart rate, the cadence. You can really um, intuit those numbers because you're that in touch with what your body's doing. And that's a really powerful place to be in. That means you're developing a really strong intuition. So part of it is that I think, but I like to fluff sunshine up my own skirt sometimes. And also say that I don't necessarily need metrics or numbers to teach myself a lesson. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little more intuitive than that, but I had to learn this lesson that um, not everyone's like that. And my athletes aren't like that. And sometimes they need gizmos and devices. Right. I got one athlete I worked with recently who I'll say has been chronically underfueled for probably several seasons mm -hmm. and this has been a theme and we've had lots of conversations about it and he understands it. But at the same time, I think it was hard to execute. Right. And recently we, um, we started tracking his diet with chronometer and then we also got a super sapiens on him. Mm -hmm. So that's a continuous blood glucose monitor. And those two things together have really, now we can see the data and we see that his blood sugar is he's trying to hard rise and he's riding around at 86. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. This is not the performance <laughs> zone, you know? And then just the other day, I read an article on Ronan McLaughlin's um, Eversting 
And his second one he did, which was insanely fast, like blazingly, ridiculously on the moon fast, 25 minutes faster than his first one, I guess, which is like several zip codes from where I could ever imagine (laughs) riding myself, Um, which is cool. Uh, He, he had a, his blood glucose level was 160 average for the whole ride. Wow. Right. Yeah. And the amount of foodie and gels and things he ate, of course, was preposterous and yeah. drink and whatever. And it was all sugar, 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 which for an event like that is, you know, that's what you need. Totally. Got to put rocket fuel in the, in the rocket if you're going to make it go to Mars. Yeah. So, but for me, it was really an important lesson as a coach, like, okay, I need to, we all have this bias where we view other people through the lens, which we view the world through. Right. Right. I experienced this. My experience is that I don't need to, like, I ate oatmeal a bunch when I was 16 years old and discovered that if I just have oatmeal and maple syrup, that 20 minutes later, I feel like a piece of junk because I rode my bike and my blood sugar crashed. Right. And I figured that out somehow. I was like, I need something else. I don't know what it is. I just started adding things until I figured out, hey, eggs work really well and bacon's okay too. And yeah. now before I go for a long ride, I have oatmeal and bacon. And then I went the other way, had only eggs and bacon. And then, <laughs> and that, then I sucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, ooh, this doesn't work either. I need both. Yeah. So that was my own trial and error. I didn't need a continuous blood glucose monitor to figure that out. Right. But I can't or ought not to assume that my athletes will have the same trial and error experience, even if I'm guiding them through it. Right. Right. Sometimes data can be a very powerful, instructive tool. Totally. Right. I think it's, yeah, it's so easy to like, I mean, there's a huge amount of value in having that sort of intrinsic awareness. That means you don't need those external tools, but it's, it's really easy to be so focused on that, that like, sometimes you need those external tools to elicit the change. And then once the change is elicited, it's not like it's you're walking around with a cane for the rest of your life. It's like you have a cane for three weeks when you break your ankle and then you drop it and you walk again. Yes, exactly. There's a point when you can walk away from the technology and put it down. I wore a loop for two years. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm good. It's like, it's a, it's like a learning tool. It doesn't have to be like a daily execution tool, but it's like a, Mm -hmm. it's like a learning tool. I mean, it's, I guess it's basically the same as saying like read a book to learn something, but for some reason it feels less comfortable than that. It feels like it's a crutch, Mm. but like you wouldn't say reading a book to learn something is a crutch. You've got to figure it out on your own. Fair enough. (laughs) You're right. You're right. If I want to learn Spanish or something and I picked up a book and started Spanish to English vice versa, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm cheating. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) You're totally right. Yeah. I mean, we all have to use the tools we have to use to learn and people learn in different ways. Yeah. Some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners, et cetera, tactile learners. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, Tell me one, blow some sunshine on my skirt. Tell me one thing you learned from me when I coached you. Being able to change pace is very important, no matter what type of bike rider you are. Mm. Excellent. Okay. That's that's one that's just super super core for me. Cool. No one no one doesn't have to change pace, even in the Leadville 100. For sure. Yep. Remember when we're riding up a hill, we're really accelerating, right? Yeah. Because inertia is pulling us downhill. Well, it's just unless you're riding on the trainer, it's almost impossible to to ride consistently and if you're someone that's really good at riding consistently like i was your resistance 
to inconsistencies can be really low. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't work on building the resistance to those inconsistencies, you don't even get the chance to do what you're good at of riding consistently yep. because you're so blown out by the time you get to your little moment to shine. Mm. So yes. th that was a big right. thing for me. Work yeah. on changing pace. Also, like sometimes the moment in which you see the problem isn't the moment in which the problem's being caused. It's the three things that happened before that moment. So maybe you don't need to work on the moment. You need to work on resistance to the mm -hmm. three things that happened before the before. moment. I mean, I guess it's the same in biomechanics a lot. Your knee hurts, but your problem's in your hip or something the exact like that. example I was going to use, yeah. preferred pain. Yeah. 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 Problem is above or below. Or the PT world, you call it surrounding the dragon. <laughs> your knee hurts, work, work on the hip, work on the ankle. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, uh, I'll put you on the spot to tell me one thing that I screwed up as a coach. One mistake I made or something you later learned, you were like, that guy's an idiot. I don't know. I, I might have to think. I, I mean, not to be too uh, complimentary, but I felt really good about uh, the work we did together. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it's a simple it's not really your mistake. I remember getting really tired a couple times in the preseason when I was managing school and training. So like mm -hmm. at times, like the load was more than I could handle, but we had like just started working together mm -hmm. and I had school and there's not really a way for you to quantify the stress of that. And it's also on me to communicate what I'm feeling. So that's like the most mm -hmm. tangible thing I can okay. think of, but it's also not really fair to say like you messed that up. Well, that's a great example though. I mean, that goes back to our foundational principles and understanding the athlete's life context. Yeah. Right. Or if on the bike is uh, TSS, then there's like total life stress score. <laughs> yeah. TLSS, you might call it, right? Like, did you just have a fight with your girlfriend or your spouse or your boyfriend before you got on the bike that day? You're totally. crap, right? Uh, are you going through a divorce? Did you yeah. just move? Did your dog just die? Were there raccoons humping in your backyard all night? You didn't sleep because your dogs were going bonkers. I mean, yeah. weird stuff happens, right? Like you're in school, you're carrying this load. And that that's an important point too. Like coaching is, it's so relational. It's so important to get a rhythm with an athlete. And that takes time. Yeah. Because, you know, like you said, you mentioned you and I just started working together. So it takes time for me to learn more about Nate's life and understand, you know, what are his school demands? Is he, yeah. he's in school. But is he in school, air quotes, like right, posting right. through kind of like I was? Yeah. Or are you actually applying yourself and really learning things and yeah. doing all the reading you're supposed to be doing? That has a huge impact on your training load. Yeah. Right? And how you adapt to those things. And also, is your training, do you perceive it as an added stress to schoolwork or is it more of a counterbalance and a release? Right. And that comes down to the personality and human. Totally. So establishing, you know, keeping those clear lines of communication, I think as a coach, I would say I've fallen victim to not like, there's always this balance, right? But you have to continually kind of pester your athlete a little bit. Like, how's yeah. it going? How's it going? What? I haven't heard from you in a bit. There's no comments in your files. Like file without comments is useless. Totally. Right. Yeah. It's just numbers. Like yeah. who cares? I don't care if you just rode your best 20 minute power ever. If I don't have context, it doesn't mean anything. Totally. Was someone chasing you with a shotgun in their car? <laughs> were yeah. you being chased by a pack of cougars? Yeah. Or were you just out? Did you get to the top of the climb and go, wow. Yeah. And you were shocked. You were JRA. Like yeah. two totally different contexts. Or did you feel, or were you chasing someone and you felt like you were dragging a tree stump the entire day, but you still pulled it off? Yeah. All different yeah. data points. And I'll give you something different to take away. Yeah. Right. 
Right. I mean, I think it just takes time no matter what. Like, yeah. even for the coaches that are really good at getting to know an athlete, it still just takes time because even if it's an athlete that's really open and communicates great, like, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you can't just sit there and have a 20-hour conversation. Yeah. One time. And right. then you and then you know them. Right. You know, it just I mean it's first date. <laughs> yeah. Like I generally think I'm good at getting to know people, but like mm -hmm. I just started coaching a new triathlete and uh she lives here in Boulder, and so I was able to sit with her face to face. And we'd already been working together a couple months, and just in like one 90-minute conversation, I already learned so many new things that it's like they're sort of important, but at the same time, they're not so directly important that you would ever actively ask a question about it. Yes. You just need them to come out with time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's why I love to go riding with my athletes. Um, a lot of times in the first couple of minutes, you know, or your regular text conversation or through your, your training platform, whatever, normal file talk, you know, oh, I saw this in your intervals today. Sure. Oh, my legs were sore. That kind of stuff comes up. How's it going? Yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then you go riding with them in about 48 minutes in almost every time. <laughs> hey, let me ask you about this. What do you think about the all broccoli diet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Cool. I'm really glad you asked that question. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, FaceTime. Yeah, it helps. FaceTime helps a lot. Yeah, cool. Well, um, I think we're at a good winding down place here, Nate. I want to say thanks for taking the time to have a conversation with me. And I also want to say that uh, it's been super cool to watch you progress through your own coaching career and do all the work you did at USAC and now working for EF. That's super cool. And, and it's been great to work with you on the EF coaching team, EF coaching platform project. That was really, that was fun. Good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been, yeah, I appreciate the kind words. It's been uh, mutual. Uh, yeah. I feel like I've had so much positive influence from the community around me. Right on. Yeah, good. Yes. I got to say, it's a cool team to work for. A lot of yeah. easy things that happen there. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. It's great people. And yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's just fun. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, maybe I'll get a chance to work with you uh, this spring and some of the camps or such. Excellent. So, cool, man. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I wanna make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. 
and there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for you listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.